You know, we often find patterns in our lives, some good and others not, but often those patterns bleed into our families for years and years. Well, today on the Vineyard Church Podcast, Myron looks at the consequences of Abraham's lie and its impact on generations. Good morning. How are we doing today? Oh, yeah, we're doing really good. This is... You guys were scared I was going to come out and talk about sex again, and you guys are all like, whew, some of y'all were sweating last couple weeks, but we're back in the book of Genesis. We'll be in Genesis 20, and I just, before we start, I just want to commend Chris, our, you know, our lead pastor, and his leadership, and the church for being willing to step into such a controversial and charged and emotionally sensitive topic, and the world is talking about it. It's creeped into our school systems, our policies, and so, yeah, I just want to thank uh, Chris and this church for being willing to when there's something uh, hot and spicy and controversial that we're not, we're not afraid or ashamed to look at Scripture, look at the truth in God's Word, and, and, and equip the church, you and I as Christians, to know how to engage with our culture in that way. So incredible two weeks. If you missed it, it's online, our YouTube page or our website. Go back and watch the Sex Factor two-week series about that. But we're back in the book of Genesis. We're in the beginning series. And it's been so good. 17 weeks. Today we're in chapter 20. So if you got your Bibles and want to follow along, feel free to do that. Your device will be in chapter 20. And so today we're going to see a story about Abraham's life that we've seen before. This is like the sequel. This is like the sequel to the movie that happened in chapter 12. So if you got notes and you want to write notes down, this is the sequel. The first one happened in Genesis chapter 12. And you can go back and read that. And so literally it's like this is the sequel. I don't know about you. But every time I watch a sequel, sometimes it doesn't deliver on the first one. Like, well, that was disappointing. Anybody with me? Like, the sequel seems to never outdo the first one. This one seems to outdo the first one. It's like, oh my gosh. It's the same story, same lie, same everything, same kind of cast of characters. And part of me looks at this chapter and goes, why the heck is this in the Bible? Why would Moses, who is the author of Genesis, and the reason that he's writing this he know he's got the whole story. Like he sees the whole nation of Israel, their whole life, and and everything that they've kind of been through. He knows the history, and he he chose to include this sequel, this repeat of kind of what happened, chapter twelve. And Moses is writing to the nation of Israel, who's just come out of slavery in Egypt, and he's trying to. I think what he, his intent is to make sure they know who they are like where they came from, their history, and learn a little bit about themselves and humanity and how, you know, even though we're followers of Jesus or we are people set apart, we still suck and still mess up. Even Abraham, the father of the faith, the pinnacle person, still messes up in the same way. And he wants them to know about their history, who they are, who God is, and more about humanity. And I think that's why he puts chapter 20 Moses puts it in here. And so what we're going to do today is look at something, and then really we're going to trace uh, Abraham's legacy for a little bit. I just want to foreshadow a few chapters ahead. We'll get there, but I just want to foreshadow a little bit of his legacy, and really we can get some insight into who Abraham was and hopefully get a little bit of insight into who we are. So chapter 20 takes place about a couple months out uh, past you know, chapter 18 and 19. They're all kind of close together. Now, if you've been with us, we've learned and discovered that sometimes there's a huge gap 
between chapters. Like, this isn't a Netflix series where it's like season one, the next day is season two, or next week, or next year, season three. Like, it doesn't always fall in that nice linear pattern. There's been 16 or 17 year gaps between chapters sometimes, but this one's going to happen right around the same time, two or three months between 18, 19, and chapter 20. So in 18, let me catch us up real fast. 18. Uh, Abraham has promised his son Isaac. These three guys that are kind of angelic beings, maybe Jesus before Bethlehem, show up and he's like falling on his face and he's having this interaction with these, these holy beings. And uh, they promise him, they say, hey, by this time next year, we're going to come back and you will have your son Isaac. Rebecca, or, uh, Sarah, your wife, will become pregnant. A miracle because they're 90 plus. I mean, they're outside of their childbirthing years. But he gets the promise that he will have a son within a year in chapter 18. And then also these three guys warn him about what's about to happen in 19, which is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we unpacked that. Chris Dew was here before, you know, three weeks ago unpacking that. And, and so the city gets destroyed and Abraham's like, before the city gets destroyed, Abraham's pleading and begging to save people. And there was this interaction in this account we, we saw, but ultimately God brings down fire and brimstone, destroys the city and only Lot and his wife and his daughters escape. But his wife looks back and she turns to a pillar of salt. And then it's Lot and his daughters in a cave. And there was some wine and you might have been here for that. And that was crazy. We unpacked that. And so now we're going to pick up in chapter 20 after all this has happened. A few months, time span. This is what happens in Genesis chapter 20, verse 1. It says this. Now Abraham moved from there, the region, the Jordan Valley area where Sodom and Gomorrah was. Like It was the next door area, neighbor, so to speak, of where he was. They go from that region. Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev, which is the southern region. The Negev is the southern region. And they live between Kades and Shur. For a while, he stayed in Gerar. So he's now in Gerar. Now I want you to notice here, there's no famine. There's no command. There's no like God saying, go. Abraham, on his own free will, decides, hey, we're up, we're leaving. And experts would argue, and they would, you know, they disagree, and we don't know for certain theologians, and experts don't know for certain. But one of the theories that I think is, he just watched a whole entire city get destroyed. And I'm sure there's probably some ash and some sulfur smell, and he's like, you know what, we're just going to start over. Like, we're just going to migrate away. But he was never instructed to, there's no real reason for him to go, but he goes to his new region of Gerar. And verse 2 says, and there Abraham, and there Abraham said of his wife, she is my sister. Underline, you remember this? Chapter 12, it's the same thing. He says, no, this she's my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. Same exact thing. Now we've learned that Sarah was a smoke show. I mean, she was radiantly beautiful, probably more so than any other woman. And so this king Abimelech's like, I want her. And so, I mean, she's 90. So either she's a really gorgeous nine-year-old or everybody in Gerar is like 150 plus. And she's like, ah, you're the youngest one here. I'm going to take you into my harem, make you one of my concubines, and I can sleep with you whenever I want. Or more accurately probably is it was a sign of power to where a new person would come into my kingdom and I would take one of their relatives and put them in my kingdom if I was the king. I wouldn't do that, but, um, you know, in my kingdom to show power and allegiance and an alliance would form. But anyhow, he goes and he takes Sarah and Abraham's like, yep, she's my sister, not my wife. Same exact lie he told in chapter 12. 
Verse 3, but God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, you are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Abimelech's like, whoa, hold on. I had no idea. Verse 4, now Abimelech had not gone near her. So he's, he's like, I'm innocent. I didn't go near her. I didn't touch her. I didn't have sex with her. And he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Will you destroy me and my kingdom and bring judgment upon my people? Did he not say to me, did Abraham not say to me, she's my sister? And did she also say, he is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. I'm an innocent man. Then God said to him in, his, in the dream, yes, I know that you did this with a clear conscience. So I have kept you from sinning against me. I have withheld you from going and acting on your desires. Your intent was to sleep with her. That's why you took her. But I have kept you from sinning against me. This is why I have not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. He's a lying prophet, but he's a prophet. He's a holy man. And he will pray for you and you will live. You're not a dead man. I was kind of joking. But you, you deserved it. But you're not. You're not a dead man. You will surely live if you return her. You may be sure that you and all who belong to you in your kingdom. Oh, oh, but if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. There's judgment, Abimelech, if you don't go and write this. Even though you did it with a clear conscience and you got lied to, but what you are doing is wrong and is sin and you need to go make it Right, so I want to pause right here before we get into my, my points about this idea of a clear conscience. I think our culture, much like Abimelech, is like, you know what? As long as I feel like it's okay, as long as I've somehow justified this and have a really good logical explanation, even though I probably know it's wrong, but I have a clear conscience and I feel good and Jesus is my homeboy and he's okay with me doing this because God is love and therefore I can do whatever I want because it's who I am. And having this clear conscience is an absolute lie that we've bought into in our culture of worship. So most and saying this is okay, this is permissible. I've done my best. I've done all that I can do. And that's because we have a misrepresentation or a misidea of what sin is and who God is. Because we think that sin is the absolute things or the things that are absolutely wrong. Like murder and rape and bank robbery and, and those crazy big things. Like, yep, that's obviously sin. That is wrong. And we have this idea that if it's absolutely wrong, therefore that's what sin is. But you, also know, you know what sin also is? Things that we don't even realize are probably oppositional to God. Unforgiveness, holding a grudge, not forgiving, gossip, smearing someone's name or image in person or online. We tell a little bit of a lie or we steal something like maybe it wasn't that big a deal. It was downloading something off the Internet or maybe we have a little bit of anger in our life or we're full of pride or we have lustful intent when we gaze and look and browse on the Internet or we're full of selfishness and we want people to do things for us or maybe we have laziness in our life. There's all these things, and we look at those little things and go, well, it's not really that big of a deal. But I feel like it's okay. Like, I deserve this. It's part of who I am, and God would want me to be happy. And my conscience is clear, but that's an absolute lie. Sin is still sin. James 4, 17 says this about, hey, if you know what the right thing to do is, and you don't do it, for you it is sin. And so in everyday life, in your decisions, when you know what the right thing to do is, 
And yet, like Abraham, you're like, well, this is kind of a partial truth. Like, she is my sister, but I'm kind of deceiving people by not being fully truthful. We do this all the time and, and, and justify it with a clear conscience. And it's the, it's, you know what the right thing to do is, and you don't do it. It is sin for you. And we think that sin out of ignorance or innocence isn't that big of a deal. There was no intention behind it. It's kind of just harmless. But here's the thing about God. Is He's so holy and He's righteous. And any amount of sin, however we categorize it, is separation from Him. He cannot be. He will not be in the presence of sin. He's too holy. He's too righteous. He's set apart. And so if we try to categorize it, it doesn't matter how much we categorize it. Sin is sin and He cannot be where it is. And so we have this misview of God that, you know, he, he's, he's loving. He's just, I mean, he is loving, but he's so loving, he's so accepting, and Jesus is my best friend, and I have a clear conscience, when really, even if we have a known sin that we've done or an unknown sin that we've done, God cannot be in our presence or with us because of that sin. And that is why Jesus is necessary. And I love God's grace in this story, even pre-Jesus, because he looks at this and goes, yeah, Abimelech, you're right. You got lied to. And my grace is on Sarah because guess what? She's about the time to conceive a child. Think about it. In a year's time, we're two to three months since that promise, about a year's time's coming, like she is at the time to get pregnant. And so if she would have had sex with somebody in the king of Bimelech's kingdom, there would have been question of whether or not that boy was actually Abraham's boy. So God's grace was on Sarah, keeping everybody in his kingdom off of her so she would not be in question of her purity of whether or not that child would be Abraham's. And I also love God's grace in this story because in his innocence, he got lied to. God shows up to Abimelech and convicts him and says, hey, you're a dead man. There's judgment on you for what you're doing. It's wrong, but my grace is sufficient for you. Return her, make it right, and you will be made well, and your kingdom will be restored, and everybody in your kingdom will be healed, and the judgment will be removed from you. I love it. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing for us. That's exactly why Jesus is necessary. He didn't just go to the cross for every known sin that you know you've done in your conscience. He went to the cross for every unknown sin and subconscious sin any of us have ever committed that we didn't know about but still deserved punishment. And that's why he went to the cross and he died for the known and the unknown because we need forgiveness for our known and our unknown sin because the reality of sin is it separates us from God and he cannot be with us where there is sin. And pre-Jesus, in the Old Testament, they had the sacrifice system where they would sacrifice an animal. And they would do this on a regular basis, and when they were doing that, they would confess their sins that they knew. And then every year in the Old Testament, in that covenant, they would go one day a year, it's called the Day of Atonement. And they would sacrifice an animal on the Day of Atonement that would cover all the unknown sins of their people and their family. And that's exactly what Jesus does for us. The final sacrifice, the Lamb of God on that cross, dying and taking the penalty, the punishment that we deserve, which is death. We deserved it. He's taking all for the known and unknown sin. Because nowhere in the Bible does it say if you feel good, if you have a clear enough conscience, if you can somehow thwart a half-truth in there to get, to get what you want, it is wrong and it is sin. And I think this... Can, I think this uh, clear conscience thing comes back to comparison. Just think about it for a minute, right? You're, you might be sitting there thinking, you know what? I'm in a monogamous relationship committed to this person, and we're going to get married, and I know we're sleeping with each other or we're living with each other, but you know what? It's better than Tinder hookups every weekend. 
It's better than going out and even on Christian Mingle where you're just looking to hook up. Like I'm not just hooking up or sleeping around. I'm committed to them. We're going to get married eventually, but you know what? It's a half-truth. You, you probably are going to get married to her or him eventually. It's a half-truth that you're using to justify your actions now, which it is still sin. You might be thinking, well, you know what? I don't, I don't drink that much. It's like just on the weekends every now and then. Other people were cracking it every night. They're getting drunk on the regular. But I, my actions, compared to them, I categorize them. It's not as bad. My conscience feels good with this. But the abuse of drink or drug or any addiction is sin in your life. And some of us might stretch the truth and exaggerate, don't we? Where we try to carry an image of ourselves. We're trying to impress people, so therefore we thwart the reality of our life to make us look better in the eyes of other people because we fear they won't love us, accept us, or like us, and we might miss out on something, so we might exaggerate because we have comparison at the root of this, which is trying to clear our conscience to make us feel good about ourselves. But it's still sin, and Jesus came to die for that too. Not to give us permission to continually do it, but to repent of it and invite accountability into our life so that we could be made well and set free like Abimelech, justified and set free from his wrong that he didn't even know existed in his life. And God's grace showed up to him and convicted him. And the same thing is true with us in Jesus and the Holy Spirit. If you invite him in, he'll come into your life and he'll highlight areas where you don't even realize that you're cutting corners and fudging the truth a little bit. And he will highlight that and you can repent and get set free from that. Another piece of this is another reason I think this happens and is so prevalent, like in Abraham's story in chapter 12 and in Abraham's story right here in chapter 20, is Abraham doesn't experience an immediate consequence for his disobedience or his lie. He doesn't. It, actually, on the contrary, he gets blessed. Remember back in Egypt with Pharaoh? When he did this, he got money, he got camels, he got donkeys, he got maidservants and male servants. His kingdom exploded, his wealth exploded. And I'm looking at this going, wait, wait, wait. Abraham should be the one punished. Not Pharaoh and his kingdom. I look at King Abimelech. I'm like, why is King Abimelech a dead man and all of his people going to die if he doesn't go right this thing when he didn't even know he was in the wrong? Seems like Abraham should be the one punished. Doesn't make sense in my finite brain. And I think because there's not an immediate consequence, we can justify that as God's approval. Of saying, you know what? I slept with him or her, or I got drunk that night, or I did this, or I cut the corners. I didn't report this income on my taxes. I did this, I did this, but nothing happened. I'm getting away with it. And actually, my life is better. I'm a little bit more wealthy. I'm a little bit more liked. I'm a little bit more connected. And we feel like we're getting away with it. But I, I'm here to tell you, that Abraham didn't get away with it. I'm sure he felt the consequences in his marriage with Sarah back in Egypt, and I'm sure he's going to experience it now. And eventually, everything that he got in, in Egypt from Pharaoh, one of those things was a maidservant called Hagar. You remember how that turned out? There was consequences that happened for his disobedience and him not following God's best in his life. But oftentimes, we don't feel it immediately. And that feeds the cycle for us to continually do it and continually do it, thinking we're getting away with it. But here's the thing about sin a lot of times is we, not, we might not feel the consequences immediately, but I bet somebody else does. Jesus felt them all on the cross at one time simultaneously. Maybe that's where it's felt. But oftentimes when we abandon our families because we got a career that we're so pursuing and thinking and we're justifying, I got to provide, I got to make more money, and you neglect your family, that's probably sin for you. Knowing the right thing to do is your priority is your wife and your kids, and you're off doing your own thing, they feel it, you don't. 
Or if you have lustful gazes in your eyes or maybe your web search, you might not feel it because you're loving it. It feels good for you. But your spouse probably feels that the intimacy starts to break. Sin oftentimes isn't felt by us immediately, but it's felt by somebody else immediately. And I'm thinking about Sarah in this situation. She's feeling this, man. She just got ripped from her husband and taken, and the intent was to sleep with her again. I'm sure she's feeling it. Abraham's like, I'm getting money. I'm getting animals, man. This is amazing. It's working out for me. There's consequences that happen that play out immediately. And all the consequences is death. And I don't mean physical death. It's spiritual death. Where we are completely separated from God for all of eternity. So this all happens. And verse 8 says this. He wakes up from his dream. I'm sure he says, early the next morning. He's like, first thing, we got to go fix this. I know it's wrong. Immediately, early next morning, Abimelech summoned all of his officials, had a team meeting. He's like, hey, did anyone sleep with her? Like, are we clean? Are we truly good? Yes, okay. And when he told them what had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, what have you done to us? How have I wronged you? What did I do to deserve this? He's saying that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom. You have done things to me that should never be done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, here we go. What was your reason for doing this? And here comes the lies. Here comes the justification. Here comes us, or Abraham, pulling at whatever he can when he's caught in the crossfire. of Like, well, you know, I'm going to justify this some way to clear my conscience. Abraham replied, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place. He's assuming something about this region. And they will kill me because of my wife. And that was a common practice. Kings and people of power would take what they wanted, and if they had to kill the husband to get the wife, they would do so. He was afraid of losing his own life. And verse 12, besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and then she became my wife. She's my half-sister that just happened to become my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. And so when did he start wandering from his father's household? Chapter 12. He started wandering from his father's household and, and, and God showed up to Abraham and said, go, leave your family. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to, you know, your descendants will number the stars. There's this promise that God has on Abraham's life and he leaves and he's journeying on his way and they came up with a really good plan or they thought it was a really good plan. It's kind of scary out there in this world. So you know what? Let's just go with the first relationship that I have with you, which is sister and we'll ignore the wife thing so it goes well for me, and that's how you can love me. And that was the plan that they had, albeit a bad plan, a half-truth, but that was the plan. And in chapter 20, we see this is Abraham's pattern, and we don't have accounts of how many times he did this. I speculate and think it's probably more times than what's recorded, because this seems like a pattern. He's adhering to a bad plan, and we know of two, chapter 12, the famine in Egypt with Pharaoh, and now here in Abimelech, with King Abimelech in Gerar, and there's this pattern that he has. And Abraham gets blessed in that one, he gets in this one, and we look at it and go, why? I don't quite understand, and I don't really have all the answers, and I can't really give you good answers of why. But I will say this, it brings me a lot of comfort to know that if God has a plan for my life, I can't screw it up. There was a promise on Abraham's life, and as immoral as some of his decisions were, and the pattern that he was in of maybe lying and half-truthing, 
God was like, I'm still going to bless you. I'm still going to fulfill my promise, even though I'm not really proud. Or like, Abraham, you're not doing it the right way. My promise for you. And that's what's good for us. Because you and I, we might fall into the same patterns. And we do fall into the same patterns. And we cannot sit there and justify and abuse God's grace, the forgiveness on that cross, to go do whatever the heck we want. But when it happens, there's grace that covers it. And if God can use Abraham and all the heroes of the faith that we see in the Old Testament, he can use you and I, even when we are imperfect. And he will accomplish his plan even through you in the immorality, just like Abraham. And so in verse 14 it says this. This is where Abraham gets blessed. Then king of Imelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham. And he returned Sarah, to his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, my land is before you. Live wherever you would like. And to Sarah he said, I'm giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. Twenty-five pounds of silver. That's a fortune. He's doing this to cover the offense against you before all who were with you. You are completely vindicated. Vindicated. And this is God's, like, I think the reason that God allowed this to happen is like, hey, just, just so y'all know that this woman is clean. Like, we did not have sex with her. The child that she's conceiving in this moment or in this time period is Abraham's. And I'm vindicating her. I'm clearing her name. I'm clearing her reputation. And then verse 17, then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and all his female slaves so they could have children again. The Lord kept all the women in Abimelech's household from conceiving because of Abraham's wife. What a punishment for a sin that he didn't even know that he was committing. It's crazy. The reality is, is that sin deserves punishment. Sin deserves death. God cannot be where it is, even if it's known or unknown. This is a weird story. We read this and go, why is this in the Bible? Why does it seem like we can get away with things? Why is God blessing Abraham? I'm not sure. But even through our failures and our shortcomings and our patterns of sin to where we find ourselves in, God wants to pull us from that and still continue His plan through us. And so this brings me to my first point. Any truth meant to deceive is still a lie. Any truth. Any amount of truth that we say to deceive or manipulate or to cover ourselves it's still a lie. It's still wrong. It's still sin in God's eyes. You see, this has been going on for all of human history. Let's go back to the Pharisees real quick in Jesus' day and age, right? The, the Pharisees, what they would do is, is they, would, uh, they, would, they would swear by an oath of the land or by like some human thing, and therefore they could then manipulate the people into getting what they wanted like their own business dealings, and they could swear by the land or by the earth, and it was okay. But if they sweared by God or sweared by the temple, then the people knew it was legit from God and holy and set apart. And so then, therefore, they could manipulate and fudge the information, have these half-truths these half -truths that, they, uh, that they could get what they wanted to. They could figure out a way to have a clear conscience. And you and I, today, human nature, we figure out a way to have a clear conscience to get what we want. You ever done this? So where you're sharing a story or you're sharing something, especially as a kid, probably more than now, it's like, you know what, man, I, I jumped off that 15-foot cliff into that lake. It was sick, you know, and like I did a triple kick flip grind, you know, board slide, or, you know, I did a backflip, and people are like, no way. Yeah, dude, I swear on my grandmama's grave, like, I did that, and then they try to convince them, and they don't believe you, you go one step farther, they say, I swear to God, bro. I swear to God that I did that, and so people then maybe believe you, and if they don't believe you then, where do we go next? 
Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a thousand needles in my eye. It happened. I promise you it happened. We swear to try to convince people. We exaggerate or inflate fish stories. It was this big. It was a whale, bro. It was huge. Right? We exaggerate in order to impress people with comparison that we try to have a perception of human or a perception of other humans that we're better than what we really are. We try to think we're better than what we really are. And what we're doing when we do this is we're just trying to convince ourselves it's okay. We're just trying to convince ourselves and clear our conscience so that it's okay what we're doing. This is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. He says, let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. Don't swear or take an oath like the Pharisees are doing to manipulate and get what they want for their own personal gain. But a true follower of Jesus, a true follower of me, one of my disciples, when you say yes, that's enough. When you say no, it's enough. You don't have to try to elaborate or really convince somebody. We should be men and women of integrity that what we say is truthful and we don't have to exaggerate or manipulate or deceive to get what we want across. Let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. We should not try to take a half-truth meant to deceive, to manipulate. It is wrong. Abraham was doing this and it was wrong. And you know why we lie or why we half-truth things a lot of times? Because we want to get out of consequences. Anybody got kids? <laughs> Did you eat that cookie? Yeah. Why? Well, my, my, brother, my, my brother gave it to me. Like, I, I didn't eat it on my own. Like, he gave it to me. And so immediately we lie to get out of a punishment because we know it's not wrong. There's consequences for our actions. And, and then what do we try to do? We try to shift the blame. Always, like, no, no, it wasn't me, it was him, like, it was her, it was culture, it was my work, it was the expectation of society. Like, I, I didn't have a choice. And he tries to clear our conscience that we justify it with a lie to, to cover up our consequences to not experience them, or we direct the blame so we try to not have guilt of we're the responsible party a lot of times. The other aspect of why I think we lie or manipulate with half-truths is because we don't want to miss out on an opportunity. There's an opportunity that we want to seize and we're trying to manufacture an image or an outcome and we won't always be as truthful as we should have been. But we have to let our yes be our yes and our no be our no and be men and women of integrity doing what is right. Because if we don't, it is sin for us as the book of James tells us. I look at King Abimelech. He didn't even know and he tried to shift the blame. It wasn't my fault. And that's partially true. But even a sin that we don't even know, we got to get right or, or confess, own up to, once we are made aware, repent of it, and do the right thing. And so then this brings up this stupid debate, right? Is it ever permissible to tell a lie? Is it ever permissible? You ever had this argument? You ever had this debate? Is it, like, when is it permissible to tell a lie? And the iconic argument is, okay, let's go back to Nazi Germany, Right? And like maybe you want to house some Jews to not be ushered off and slaughtered in the gas chambers. And so you're housing Jews, and an SS officer knocks on your door and says, you got any Jews here? What do you do? Some people are like, well, let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. Yep, sure do. Come on in. Where are they at? Right here in this closet? Right here? There they are. Take them and you go kill them. That's fine. You, do you know where any other Jews are? Yep, Bob down the street's got a bunch. And, you know, I'll take you. I'll, I'll take the whole tour of the city, man. I know where they all are, and we would look at that, some people would look at that, and well, that's, that's idiotic, that's stupid. Why would you ever do that? And you're right. 
There are times when it's appropriate for us to be deceptive when there's overt immoral behavior taking innocent lives that we can misdirect so we can preserve life, the sanctity of life. And there's a woman in the, in the, in the Old Testament called Rahab. Go read about Rahab where she harbored some spies and they came to kill the spies and like, I don't have them here. And then they left and then she sent the, the people to go, go this way. They came back and said, no, we know they're here. Where are they? They left. Which way did they go? Well, they went this way. And she deceived him and she's praised for doing so. And so there's times when it's appropriate or okay when the innocent lives and, and great immoral horrific acts are being done that we can, with integrity, do the right thing and deceive the wicked, the overtly wicked. And then there's this other... This other lie of like, you know, anyone ever had a surprise birthday party? I just had one. I didn't know I was married to such a good liar. I mean, it, I mean, it's deeper than just my wife. Like my closest friends, people I spend time with, and they, uh, they unpacked. I had no idea, which, thank you, honey. I don't even know how you did it. It was incredible to have all my friends there. I roll up and go, I had no idea. But for like two, three weeks, the lies, the deception, all the way through my friends' groups, I'm like, I can't believe y'all tricked me like this. But that is such a, I mean, the intent behind that is not malicious or deceptive or nefarious. It's good to surprise me, to show me how much they care about me and love me by throwing me that surprise birthday party. And here's why we get caught up in these stupid debates. It's a cop-out. Because if we can get up in these stupid debates and find a justification when it's okay, we can then with a clearer conscience go, well, it was okay here, so I'll just push the line to here and it's okay here. And it's a cop-out because then we don't really want to deal with the deception, the half-truths, the lies, the exaggeration, or the sin in our own lives. So stop those debates. There are times when it's permissible. For the majority of the time, it's not. Let your yes be your yes, your no be your no, be men and women of integrity. And the final thing I want to land on here is I want to trace Abraham's legacy real quick. And it says this, um, don't be surprised when our children copy our actions and not our boundaries. Don't be shocked or surprised when your kids copy your actions but not your boundaries that you have set. And I want to trace Abraham's legacy with this. And you might not have kids, but I just want to paint this picture too. Whoever you influence Whoever looks up to you as a role model and you have people who you influence and who look up, look up to you as a role model, they are watching you and they are going to copy your actions. And so Abraham, he did this. He had a half-truth to a couple of strangers, twice, right? So point one, Abraham, half-truth to a couple of strangers. He has a son, Isaac. And we're going to cover these in detail. I'm going to fly through these. He has a son, Isaac. You know what Isaac does in chapter 26 after Abraham dies and now he's the one leading the people? He goes to a new place and there's a king and he asks Isaac, he says, hey, is that your wife, Rebecca? Guess what he says? She's my sister. Same lie. Deja vu. It followed through the next generation because there was a pattern in Abraham's life that Isaac, whether or not he saw or didn't, was passed on to him through his legacy. And so it wasn't just a half-truth this time because Rebecca was not even close to one one-hundredth or one one-thousandth of his sister. So Isaac, the son of Abraham, told an absolute lie to a stranger. Went from a half-lie to now an absolute lie. It gets worse and worse every generation. Let's go one more. Number three, Jacob, right? Jacob, is, Jacob and Esau are the sons of Isaac. They're, they're twins. They're fraternal twins. Very different. But guess who came out first? Esau. 
So therefore, Esau is the firstborn son, therefore the rightful um, delegate of the father's inheritance. And Esau was Abraham or Isaac's favorite, and, uh, and then Jacob was Rebekah's favorite, and so they had their own favorites. And Esau was a man's man, like super hairy arms, burly man, hunter, fisher, gatherer. Jacob probably watched like HGTV with his mom and baked all day, right? Just smooth skin, very different personalities, fraternal twins, but Esau was the rightful birth heir. And Rebecca's like, no, 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 I want to give this to Jacob. And so Isaac's old, he can't see, he can't hear, and he, t- he says to Esau, Esau, you know what? It's time for me to give you your inheritance. So go, you know, hunt some game, cook that stew I really like, come have dinner with me, and I'll bless you. Rebecca knows the plan and says, Jacob, you can't hunt. Go kill something in the pen. That's fine. Uh, I'll mix up some stew real quick. I'll use that as a stew. We'll take the animal fur, put it on your arm so it's hairy. And you go in and you're going to deceive your father and take the birthright that I think you should have. And you know what Jacob does? He goes in and Isaac's like, all right, I'm ready to give you my birthright. And he's like, but are you Esau? And Jacob goes, yeah, I am. He's like, but you don't sound like Esau. You sound like Jacob. He's like, come, come near me. Let me feel you. And Isaac feels him. And he's got the hair on his arms, and he had animal hair. Like, how hairy was Esau? I mean, come on. Like, he feels his hands. He's like, I hear the voice of Jacob, but I feel the hands of Esau. Are you Esau? He asks him again, and his own son lies to him and says, yeah, yeah, I'm Esau. And he gets the birthright. So now we see that Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, lies to his father to steal the father's inheritance, or more importantly, to steal the brother's inheritance. It's the same action over and over and over again. The boundaries just push. Because Abraham's like, you know what? My boundary is a half-truth. <laughs> you know, I just like, it's a full-out lie to a stranger. And now we're lying to father. The boundary keeps getting pushed. But it's the same action over and over. Let's go one more. You know that uh, Jacob had 10 sons. Then he had an 11th son, Joseph. Joseph, the coat of many colors was the favorite son, and the, all the, the ten older brothers hated him. And long story short, they plotted out a way to get rid of him. And they ended up selling him into slavery, and they put blood on his coat and brought it to dad and said, hey, Jacob, he's dead. And they got rid of him. They, this, this lie. And so these ten brothers come together, and they lie to their father to cover up selling their little brother into slavery. The boundary gets pushed every generation. And so I want to speak to parents real quick. Your kids are watching you. And when you fudge here or when you compromise here and you justify here and, and you have your boundaries, they're going to copy your actions, but they're going to push the boundaries a little bit farther and test that boundary and keep pushing that boundary. So when you call in sick to work, and we did this, we exploited the COVID thing for our own benefit in this area, didn't we? And they see you do that and they go, oh, okay, so it's inconvenient for you. You got something else you'd rather do than your previous commitment. So that's your boundary. So therefore I can do that. And now when I say I'm going to John's house, I'm at Jessica's house. They push the boundary. Same action, they just push the boundary. When we aren't fully truthful or we try to deceive or manipulate or we flake on commitments as parents or we talk to our spouse, their mom or their dad or their grandma or their grandpa in a way in which is not good, they're watching the way you have a relationship with somebody, a romantic relationship. And if it's unhealthy, they're going to repeat the same exact thing and that's who they're going to look for in a spouse. That's how they're going to treat the people closest to them in their life. 
And if you look back at your mom and dad and your grandparents and you talk about your family lineage, I bet you see patterns of the same kind of behavior and sins that trip you up, that trip them up. I know it's true for me. And I didn't realize this until I actually sat down and pondered and went, oh my gosh, I am more like my parents than I want to admit. Because there's parts of me, like I never wanted to be like my dad, I never wanted to be, I, like I never wanted to be. And I see it in my life. I look at my grandpa, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm more like him than I realized with my temper, my anger, my pride, and lustful gazes, all of that. I'm like, man, I am, I am in the same pattern as what I'm seeing. And I do not want to pass that on to my children. And here's the good news, parents. I believe that we can stop the generational sin that exists in your family with you right now. To where you can get really honest with yourself. And we can get honest with ourselves and say, who am I influencing Who's watching me and say, no more will I be a bad role model or a bad example to where I'm fudging and I'm compromising and I'm having a clear conscience to where my kids and the people I'm influencing see that and they do the same exact thing generation after generation. It was true in Abraham and I think it's true today. And if you're honest, you'll look at your own family and you'll see these patterns. And so we got to fight against this generational sin and it's bigger than just this deception and lies. We got to break the generational sin to where you know young people are living together before they're married, because now you have no moral right and authority when your kid does that. Of like, yeah, I mean, we did the same thing. I can't really even hold you accountable. Or maybe we we get divorced. We see that in our parents, and maybe our marriage is rough, and we're thinking about divorce, and our kids are going to see that and go, "You're just setting them up that that's going to probably be their future." Or maybe you are watching inappropriate images or you're flirting with somebody who's not your spouse and your kids are watching this and it's like that's what they are going to repeat in their own life. They're seeing it. They're watching. They're repeating our actions. They're pushing our boundaries. Whether or not we're coming home and watching inappropriate shows and allowing them to be in the room and seeing it, what are you ingraining in them and and the decisions that they're going to make one day when they become adults? They're going to have the same patterns as you. You come home and crack a beer every night or open a bottle of wine saying, you know what, I need this. I work hard. I deserve this. And your boundary is drunkenness, but they see, they see repetitive drinking and they change their boundary. And then it becomes more frequent for them. So we have to do three things to break the cycle of generational sin. The first one is this. Identify your pattern. Get radically honest with yourself and identify the pattern in your life. Because it's bigger than just conscious decisions or sins. I think you're going to pass on, if you struggle with anxiety, you're going to pass it on to your kids. The Bible says be anxious for nothing. You can get free from that with medicine and Jesus. I believe they're all useful and beneficial, but you got to have Jesus and you got to get right with him and let him walk with you through anxiety so you don't pass that on to your kids. They're watching you. They're seeing how you interact with the world and people. And, 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 and everyday life, and if you have anxiety, you're going to pass on. If you have depression, you're more likely to pass that on. If you have a wandering eye or pornographic addiction or you're addicted to, to work and to busyness and you're a lover of money or you have anger and the way you talk to people, you're full of pride and selfishness, you're plagued by comparison and always trying to keep up with the Joneses, you're going to pass that on to your kids. So what is your pattern? Get real with yourself. Identify, because I know it's the same thing that trips you up every single time. Because it's the same thing that gets me every single time. And I hate it. The lies come in. It's like, my it's okay. Just this once. And you know, it's not that big a deal in comparison to other things. And it wants to come into my brain and plant a thought that it's okay, but it's not. Identify that pattern. Confess that pattern. And the second thing you've got to do is you've got to get a new plan. 
Abraham was still, <laughs> him and Sarah were like, we talked about this. We left my father's house. We're still sticking to this bad plan, but this is the plan. you got to get a new plan. And so maybe that includes new friends, new influences in your life, new places that you hang out, new hobbies, new recreational activities, maybe even as radical as a new job because it's not working out for you there, a new routine, a new diet, a new budget, new priorities. Get a new plan so you don't fall into the same decisions and the same patterns of the past, but you can break the cycle with you and not pass it on to your kids. And the third thing you got to do, because you'll never adhere to this plan unless you invite accountability into your life. And that accountability has got to be your spouse if you're married. If you're not married, it's got to be someone you trust and you confess your pattern. You talk about the old plan, you get the new plan, and you have somebody hold you accountable to the new plan in your life so that you don't fall into the same patterns of sin over and over and over again. Because here's the reality about your life. You're writing your legacy every single day. What do you want people to think about you 10, 15, 20 years down the road? What do you want your kids to be like? How do you want them to live in this life and interact in culture and a world and hopefully grow up more importantly than anything else, be devoted followers of Christ who live in the freedom that you've established by breaking the curse of generational sin right here, right now. You're writing your legacy. And the final thing I want to say is this. If you don't have accountability, we're starting accountability next week. We got life groups. If you don't have young families in your life that have kids at the same season of you, come on, start a group. Get those families together. If you got empty nesters, you got college students, wherever you are, find a group of people through our life groups that you can have accountability with, do life with, have positive influences in your life so that you don't repeat the sins of your father and your grandfather and generations before you and can break the curse or the generational sin in your life. We'll have a catalog here next week in person, but the best way would be to go online, find a group of people, get accountability in your life, get a new plan, and begin to become everything God made you to become. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you that you died on that cross for all the known and unknown sins. God, I thank you so much that you love us to not leave us separated from you, but you provided the only solution. And God, I pray right now in this place that we would be men and women of integrity. God, we would walk out of here and look at our lives and get really honest and say, Lord, I've compromised here. I'm justifying here, but no more. Help me, Father, highlight these unknown areas in my life to where I thought I'm innocent and where I think I'm ignorant. Would you bring them to my to my knowledge or to my attention so therefore I can deal with them, repent of them, and put systems and plans and accountability so that I don't fall short and, and have sin in my life that I don't even know about. And God, would you just allow your spirit to, to flood our hearts and our minds with encouragement this week as we begin to self-reflect generationally and that you would inspire us, grandparents and parents and, and young people, to go and be the hands and feet of God, breaking the curse of generational sin in our own family units. That we'd be free. And the world's going to be an incredibly better place because of the decisions that were made here today to deal with what's true and the reality going on in our lives. We put it all in your hands, Jesus, and I pray in your holy name. Amen. Thanks for joining us on the Vineyard Podcast today. It's our greatest desire for people to find and follow God, and we hope this podcast is one way that helps you do just that. But don't stop here. 
We would love to see you face to face. God's people grow most in community, so don't forget you can join us live at the Capitol Theater in downtown Wheeling every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. If you'd like to connect with us in the meantime, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. You can catch up on previous messages and series, request prayer, and even download additional content. Thanks again for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.